Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester here with Sati Argabright, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And this is episode 88, where we're talking about Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong and The Woman Warrior by Maxine Hong Kingston. You can find a complete transcript and a list of all the books mentioned today linked in our show notes. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. So May is uh, Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. So all of this month, we're talking about nonfiction titles uh, by women from this background. And uh, it's, it's been pretty great, I must say. Oh, yeah. Like, I had a lot of fun doing this last year. Um, and as always, you know, talking with you, Kendra, this year has been just as great. So I'm very excited <laughs> to dive into these two books I feel like we already kind of dove into the last episode, but I'm excited to elaborate further. Hopefully everyone's um, interest has been piqued after our last episode, and this will seal the deal for our listeners to pick up these two books. Well, you talked about this in the in the first episode, but um, why in particular did you want to look at this theme for, like nonfiction, I should say, for this particular month? Yeah, so... I personally, I feel like I need to do a better job of reading more nonfiction because <laughs> I just get sucked into the fiction scope and narrative. And so this was a really good way for selfishly me personally to squeeze in the goal to prepare for the podcast by reading nonfiction. But also I feel like too, uh, one of the reasons why we kind of threw this out there as I, at least from my perspective, I knew that minor feelings was coming out. There was a lot of buzz about it. And I knew I had a pretty good feeling based off of comments that I had heard from early readers that it was really awesome that I was like, Ooh, you know, I let's try to weave a way to focus on this book. And then as the, as we started talking about like potential other kind of nonfiction picks, we came up with a lot of possibilities. And I think it just kind of like sealed it as like, oh yeah, this is some meat to it. And I think it worked out pretty nicely, especially with these two discussion picks. Like we said in the last episode, like I, I we didn't do it on purpose that these kind of go hand in hand, but it turned into a really happy accident that like both are very interlinked. Yes, very much so. so. And they pair so well together, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So I think I, think I uh, you know, obviously every May I want to talk about uh, Asian and Asian American <laughs> um, Pacific Islander titles. Um, but this was a really good way to do that. But also just focus, like our discussions compared to last year, which were a lot of our books were kind of fiction focused, like the conversation is totally different, but it's still focused on, you know, this group of people. And it's just shows like how wide this, the scope really is when, when you're talking about, um, Asian American and Pacific Islanders for, um, Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. So it's very, very interesting. I could talk about Asian books all day. So <laughs> that's mainly what I do here. So. <laughs> So Kendra, I believe we are discussing your pick first. Do you want to talk a little bit more about your discussion pick? Yeah. So my discussion pick is The Woman Warrior, Memoirs of a Girlhood Among Ghosts uh, by Maxine Hong Kingston. And uh, this originally came out in 1976. So it made sense to start with this one since this is the earliest one. And it is one of the earlier 
of books by an Asian American woman for the Asian American canon, specifically the Chinese American canon. And I had never read this book before, but like I mentioned in the previous podcast, uh, Josh Brevet, who is Autumn's husband, was working on this for academia reasons, I guess, and uh, recommended it about a year ago on the podcast for one of our anniversary episodes. So uh, Maxine Hunkinson is an author I've wanted to read for a long time. She won all of the things, like I mentioned last episode, and has been honored in so many different ways. And so she seemed like a good author for you know, a discussion about Asian American nonfiction in particular. Absolutely. Um, I feel like if you're looking for Asian American titles, like I said in the last episode, this book I feel like is referenced so much. And Maxine Hong Kingston is references a really great resource um, for a lot of the areas that we'll be discussing today. So I'm really, really excited that we get to dive into this one. Yes, definitely. And uh, one of the first points about this book that makes it so good is not just that it was one of the first of its kind, but the way that it plays Mm -hmm. with memoir and the stories that are told um, Mm -hmm. by women to other women. So I listened to a lot of talks that Maxine Honkinson has given about this book, and she always starts with the fact that her mother says, I'm going to tell you this story, but don't tell anyone else. It's a secret. Mm. And how these women are are telling the stories of other women to each other and passing that down from mother to daughter, but they're not supposed to tell anyone else because this is like the secret life of women and Mm -hmm. these stories are not supposed to be shared. Uh, And the fact that Maxine Hawkinson is writing this book and sharing those stories Mm -hmm. is really subversive in that way and sharing what it's like to grow up as Chinese American uh, and and to hear stories of a country where your parents came from that you've never been to in that way. And it really plays with what is truth and what are lies, what are just the stories we tell ourselves to survive. And um, there's a lot of interdialogue between those ideas. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I, I feel like too, a lot of it, a lot of it kind of melds and interweaves with each other a little bit. Like part of it might be because I did it on audio and, and sometimes you, you get into a part of the story and I'm like, wait, is this her life or is this a story? Like it just shows that like all of these experiences that are told from, you know, the stories that her mother is passing down can be similar to experiences that she references. And I don't know, I felt like it was a really interesting way to weave in her personal narrative with all of these stories and myths that she got from her mother and trying to discern, you know, what's real and what's not. I felt like I kind of experienced that a little bit with audiobook. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about this while we were reading it, but on the audiobook, there aren't obvious transitions between the stories and like the present mm-hmm. tense that Maxine is the memoir portions and the stories her mother's telling her. So they, they mushed mm-hmm. together. Right. And in a sense, mm-hmm. Maxine is telling you a story. She's telling you about the story yeah. of the women and her family. So she is joining this lineage of storytelling by women to other other women in our case uh, and 
what mm-hmm. that is like. And some of the stories that she tells mirror the folklore like style of the earlier stories, especially mm-hmm. I think when her aunt comes to China and she's known for a long time. Her husband mm-hmm. has a, a wife in America and has this new life. And so she has come to reclaim her position as first wife. And there's this whole drama around that, but it's told in a very folklore type style, which really mm-hmm. beautifully mirrored some of the other stories in the book. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that specific section or story really stood out to me in comparison to some of the other parts of the book because it really shows that difference between the beliefs of her mother who you know is very much still ingrained in her Chinese beliefs um, that were set before she moved to the states and then the sentiment of her children which are Maxine and her siblings of their kind of American, not like attitudes, but just like the way that they perceive and interpret things, especially the way that they interact with their aunt who has come. And like the one example that really resonated with me was the uh, compliments piece where, you know, the aunt would give her nieces and nephews a compliment and they would say thank you because in our culture that would be you know polite to say to acknowledge like oh i'm i'm grateful or or thankful that you expressed this nice thing about me right and in her mind it was like selfishness to say like no you're supposed to be humble like you're supposed to say oh no like refute this really nice thing that you said because you know I'm not as, as good as, as that. I don't, I don't think myself that highly. And you can kind of see those two sides of the coin by hearing from, you know, kind of this, the, the story from this aunt's perspective. And I think the dynamics between Asian and Asian American that I think Maxine Hong Kingston is kind of wrestling with throughout this book, especially since at the time there wasn't really a clear label for this, It really, to me, shows that difference in a really tangible way. Um, That was something that I could relate to as well as as an Asian American, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's so many instances where the identity that Maxine has as wanting to be American. And at the time, and she mentions this throughout the book, that racial minorities were not considered America, especially if you immigrated, mm-hmm. you know, to the country, you were always going to be Chinese in their eyes. And so she talks mm-hmm. about that growing up. I think that we see her when she's a young girl. So like she was born in 1940s, so probably in like the early 50s. We see mm-hmm. her interacting Uh, with, you know, other students and, you know, other racial minorities. And, you know, there's still a lot of, she mentions Japanese kids and there's still a lot of anti-Japanese sentiment from World War II. Mm -hmm. And like all of these cultural things that she gives you in the eyes of a child and her trying to process that and her goal ultimately is still to be an American and wanting to Mm -hmm. be that so, so much. And so when she's faced with, you know, her family that comes over and says, no, you know, you're Chinese. She's like, no, I'm American. And coming to the terms, I think, closer to the end of the book, that she is both. She, you know, she's Chinese American and mm-hmm. coming to terms with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The, one of the subtitles, the subtitle mentions, this is a memoir of a girlhood amongst ghosts. 
And this is a theme throughout the book, and there's lots of imagery, and it's used in a lot of different mm-hmm. ways. One of them is that all of the Americans are called ghosts. In particular, mm-hmm. I think we see this a lot more with white Americans, but they also talk about mm-hmm. the black ghosts as well, which is mm-hmm. interesting. I was very confused at first. <laughs> I was like, wait, so they're all seeing the same ghost? Like, what's <laughs> happening right now? Like, wait, and then I realized, like, Oh, like ghost garbage man and ghost mailman and stuff. Like these are just normal people. Like <laughs> I, I was very and then they and then it, they dive in more and then it becomes more obvious. But like when it was first kind of mentioned, I was like, did I? And this is again, I was like, I'd miss some transitions because I was doing it on audio. So I was like, wait, did I miss something again? And then and then I listened and I was like, oh wait, no, 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 this is a a different part of of the narrative and, and ties in with the subtitles. So it took me a second. Yeah, because there is no like you know, in the audio and even in the print, like there's no like line. It's just a different, like a, it's a page mm. break. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you move into this shift and the ghost kind of carries on. There's a lot of uh, fantastical elements to the stories that her mother tells. And so mm-hmm. it uh, kind of ties in with that, but it's really interesting to see that all of the ghosts and how that plays with that. Um, it also deals with like ghosts of ancestors as well, because, you know, Maxine is haunted by the ancestors and the land that she has never met. And so there are these photos of her ancestors on the wall and like all this stuff and um, it deals with that. And so I felt like the use of ghosts throughout the memoir was very clever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's definitely done in a lot of different types of ways and it all, it doesn't feel like, gimmicky or anything they all feel very genuine but in very different ways yeah and they're very seamless in mm-hmm. a lot of ways which I know we mentioned is struggling with the audio but I feel like the way that she plays with nonfiction and fiction is really well done um, mm-hmm. and I feel like a lot of people have done that and we've read several books like that before this, but at the time, I think it must've been pretty groundbreaking. Oh yeah, I'm sure. I, I bet it was, it was very different, uh, at at the time for, for people to experience that. It's definitely an experience I feel. So one of the things that we've already touched on a bit is a lot what Kathy Park Khan talks about in the book that we'll talk about next. But in The Woman Warrior, you can see how the narrator is fighting for American to be part of her identity. And like we've mentioned before, uh, Asian American was not a thing. Chinese American was not a thing. You were either American or you were Chinese. You couldn't be both. And so the way that her identity as an American and a desire to be an American um, and that tension between her and the stories her mother is telling her to try to impart that Chinese part of her identity to her daughter. um, It really is very thought provoking and and so well written um, in this book as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. You can definitely feel like we kind of mentioned before her grappling with that throughout the story. And I think we had alluded to it before that she, towards the end of the book, kind of um, starts realizing some of those those aspects of that internal struggle, and it's it's something that you know, as myself being an Asian American um, who grew up in the '90s and such, I feel like her um, 
internal struggle is something that I, I'd never really experienced that much. I, I feel like some of that struggle, um, is something that I feel about like my biracial identity, but not necessarily like my Asian American identity. It was something that, um, you know, I feel like was much more widely talked about and recognized. And so reading that as an Asian American person and putting myself in the minds, my headspace that Asian American wasn't really a, a term or an identified community at the time that Maxine Hong Kingston wrote this was very interesting to, to read. And I think especially when, you know, we started out this theme by talking about how Asian American is such a broad term and it includes so many different peoples mm-hmm. and everything. Um, but at the time, like uh, Kathy Park Hong uh, talks mm-hmm. about, it was really a revolutionary term and allowed people to be both mm-hmm. things, which was not something that mm-hmm. was there before. So now, you know, we're on the other end and uh, of of that idea. And it's, we're several you know generations removed from the origins of this. But I feel mm-hmm. like that's definitely something that she's captured in this memoir and something important to remember. I think we as mm-hmm. a society have such a short-term memory when it comes to our past and what other generations have struggled and their unique struggles and viewing their stories within that context and the way that we were able to frame Maxine Hawkinson's story and understand the things that her generation struggled with, I think is really important mm-hmm. to remember. And I feel like so many people kind of overlook it and, and they take what we have now for granted. Oh, yeah, 100 percent. Well, some of the criticism, um, both actual criticism and literary criticism, I should say. So some mm. of the some of that has been really interesting to read. So one of the things I wanted to mention is how you know this book looks at not just the Asian American experience, but the Asian American woman's experience. And at the time, there mm. was a lot of movements, activist movements at the time, and like uh, a lot of uh, Black women activists at the time have noted that a lot of men told them that they needed to be quiet about feminism in their context as a black woman because Mm. there was a greater movement of civil rights at stake. And they were like, no, we can criticize, you Mm -hmm. know, men and still be activists. Like there's room enough for both things. Mm -hmm. And there's definitely been that kind of conversation with Maxine Mm -hmm. Kingston, where a lot of male Asian American writers said that she should be silent about some of the issues she wanted to raise because of the greater Mm -hmm. good, as it were, for Asian Americans in general, meaning men. Mm. And so she pushed back against that, you know, and was like, no, that's, no, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Um, No. Yeah. (laughs) And she, she was should. very much um, <laughs> was studying women writers at the time and was very much into women's studies, but she saw no representation in mm-hmm. a lot of of the national conversation for Asian American women, specifically Chinese American women. And so she wanted to write that. And mm-hmm. that was a big part of the Women Warrior and her work moving forward. Since then, there has been some criticism about her and of her generation, like Amy Tan, and how they would self self orientalize mm-hmm. themselves. So that's obviously on Saeed's work, um, and how they have like internalized prejudice against their own cultural communities mm-hmm. because they went and grew up in a predominantly white space and the systematic racism that they experienced. And so their work does have some of that in Mm -hmm. there. But I think 
that also goes to the context mm-hmm. in which they were writing as well, because I feel like mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it's because I came into this space in my you know, early 20s or whatever, but I feel like internalized prejudice is something that I've seen come up in the last, you know, five to 10 years, at least on a, you know, I'm not in academia, so I'm sure it's been there for a long time. Mm-hmm. But like in the general sense, like I feel like it's something that we've been more and more aware of. And I definitely don't think that, I mean, there were there weren't Asian American works really much at all. So like there wasn't enough to have that conversation. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like I think too, um, and I don't want to get, I'm not going to get us ahead of ourselves, but I think um, Kathy Park Hong in Marnie Feelings also describes this a little bit and talking about self-hatred and internalized racism and how that is very prevalent in the Asian American community and has been in the past. And I think this is an example of that. I, I think part of that stems for Maxine Hong Kingston specifically because she was struggling with I want to be American. I want to, or I see myself as American and want to emulate that. And at the time there was anti-Japanese sentiment from World War II. And there was this mentality of you're not one of us, you know, kind of go back to where you came from type thing, even though, you know, a lot of Asian Americans were born in America. There's no place to go back to because this is their home, right? Um, part of that, you know, sentiment of her trying to be American might have lent itself to the internalized racism. If you want to be included or um, identify as one thing and everyone in that community is saying you're XYZ thing, you you don't belong with us, you're not one of us, you're bad because of all of these different reasons people, you start believing that about yourself. And that's where internalized racism builds because people say racist and discriminatory things that it it shapes the beliefs of that person to self-hate and identify, you know, all the bad things about their community. And it, it turns into this toxic, you know, relationship and cognitive dissonance within that person. And I think that that does show itself in, in this works. And that's, I feel like definitely a, a byproduct of the time and, you know, the fact that the Asian American community wasn't a place for, for her at the time and a place where you can, can wrestle with some of these things of feeling Asian and trying to be American at the same time. And there's been so much written about this. And so if anyone has any questions about the discussion that we've had about this, I would highly encourage mm-hmm. you to go check out the academic papers that have been written about this. I mean, mm-hmm. Maxine Hawkinson has had so many papers uh, and dissertations and all sorts of things written about her work. And I feel like especially mm-hmm. the Asian American community has done a great job of that and and analyzing her work in that way. And so you get a lot of own voices, academics reading her work and different things. So you would get more um detailed and researched yes. <laughs> discussions absolutely <laughs> and pages and dissertations and all sorts of things so um you could definitely go check that out i know libraries often have access to jstor and all sorts of things mm-hmm. if you are interested i know there's been a lot of um work written about her and amy tan in tandem because they both are of a similar generation mm-hmm. so definitely go check that out if you're interested in more about that And that being said about her work and a lot of the internalized prejudice that she has, uh, you know, she's still very much beloved of 
from mm-hmm. you know the Asian American and the Chinese American communities, and I, I think that's so important to note as well. I mean, I think as Celeste Ng choosing this book for a book club and talking about how this was one of the few books that she saw herself in as a Chinese American woman, mm-hmm. and you know, I think one of the things about loving a work is not saying that you love it because it's perfect, mm-hmm. but loving it because that it is all so important to you, even with its flaws, Yes, you know? And I think a lot of the criticism comes because people love this book and they want to have that discussion because they care a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like it, a lot of what reading, at least in my experience in stems to things that I really relate to, and I enjoy the experiences, things that you can relate to, right? Uh, we, as human beings, I feel like want to just latch on and relate and feel like we belong. Right. And so I experience that sometimes when I read uh, a book that is similar to my own experience, whether it has an Asian character or, or even a biracial Asian character, I get so wrapped up in, oh my gosh, yes. Like this is exactly how I feel. And this is, you know, other people are experiencing this and this, uh, this has happened to me in some way, shape or form. And I can relate to this. I I get so excited about it that I definitely look over a lot of maybe some of the the more, you know, things that other people look at and they're like, "Mm, you know, I don't know if I really agree with this or, or, you know, this plot line is so messy. Like I couldn't, I got distracted by all the loose ends and all these things. And I'm like, I don't even care. I just really like that the protagonist was like me. Like (laughs) that did it for me enough. And I feel like the conversation of representation obviously comes up in a lot of literary circles and it it definitely is still an issue, but there, there was way less representation decades ago. Um, like, you know, in the case of Celestine, there was, there was probably only Maxine Hong Kingston and Amy Tan that could really, you know, they, they could point to, to say, have that experience of, Oh my gosh, yes, there is a focus on, Asian characters that are similar to my experience and I'm going to overlook some of the, the not so great parts, um, because you identify so much and you're, you're, you latch on so much to this thing that you've never experienced before of feeling represented, which, you know, in any way, shape or form, when you experience that, especially if you are from a marginalized community, it's huge. And I think, you know, it's okay to overlook certain things um, that could be complex as long as you recognize that, yes, you know, I really love this because I was able to relate to it. Yes, there are some flaws, but that doesn't mean that I have to hinder or tamp down my great enthusiasm for my relation to the way that I feel represented to, in this book. So I think it, it, it's it's a balance and it's okay to have, have both, but I, I wouldn't discount people's experience reading this, especially, you know, at that point in time, because, um, representation is huge. We talk about this a lot on the podcast, but uh, so hopefully people under, <laughs> understand it from by now. But I, I think that that's a big part uh, of, of at least in this instance, Celeste Ng's, uh, passion for, for this book. Yeah. And, and, you know, you think critically about the works that you love. And I know a lot of people have talked about that in relation to things like, you know, Harry Potter is a big mm-hmm. one that people talk about. Hey, we love this, but we also need to mention these things. Exactly. Yes. About it. And so I think it's very similar. I mean, that's thinking critically about anything that you read. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, I really have appreciated all the work that's been done about this book because it does come from a place. And we don't have time to get into this, but of course, there's a lot of discussion about how the white publishing institution has traditionally Mm -hmm. only allowed one person of color at the table from Mm -hmm. any group, right? So, like, Mm -hmm. we have Maxine, you know, Maxine Hunkinson and Amy Tam. We don't need any other Asian American woman mm-hmm. writers and that's been a huge issue and so there's obviously a lot of pressure on these authors to be perfect mm-hmm. and to do all of these things but obviously that's another conversation for another day but <laughs> yes um that's definitely at work here as well so again mm-hmm. i highly encourage you to go check out the literary criticism there's so much because she's just so good at what she does mm-hmm. there's even a documentary mm-hmm. from like what the 90s late 90s oh really yeah oh okay yeah. so i didn't realize that I haven't seen it. I've seen clips from it, but um, she talks about this book and and her others as well, just because she's so celebrated. Uh, She Mm -hmm. received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Asian American Literary Awards in 2006, amongst her Mm -hmm. many other awards. So very much a beloved writer, obviously, because we can't shut up about her. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yes, we could go on forever. (laughs) Um, so that is The Woman Warrior, Memoirs of a Girlhood Among Ghosts by Maxine Hong Kingston. And we'll be back with more from this episode of Reading Women after a word from our sponsor. This episode of Reading Women is sponsored by A Farewell to Arms, Legs and Jockstraps by Diane Shaw. This book is an entertaining true life memoir of Diane Shaw, the first female sports journalist for a major national daily. Diane details her experiences breaking the glass ceiling in sports journalism and laying the path for today's female reporters. Diane went on to write for the New York Times, Newsweek, GQ, Playboy, and Esquire. She has also written four mystery novels. A Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps offers behind-the-scenes details of stories of a trailblazing career and the prejudices facing female sports writers during the 60s and 70s. Publishers Weekly called Diane a trailblazer for female sports reporters. Her memoir, an earnest and witty memoir that serves as an astute look into the world of sports journalism. Right now, for a limited time, Red Lightning Books and Indiana University Press are offering an exclusive free chapter download for listeners of this show. Visit iupress.org slash jockstraps hyphen reading. That's iupress.org slash jockstraps hyphen reading to download a special sneak peek. A Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps by Dan Shaw is available wherever books are sold. And all of the information for this title, including the link for the exclusive download, will be linked in our show notes. And Sashi, you have our next discussion pick. Yes. So our next discussion pick today is Minor Feelings, an Asian American Reckoning by Kathy Park Hong. And... Um, You know, if you missed our description from uh, the previous episode about this book, this is mainly just a collection of essays focused on the Asian American experience and explores many issues within the Asian American community, many that we've um, either touched on by talking about Woman Warrior um, or even some kind of more updated or modernized thought pieces around issues within the community. There's, there's so many that 
I think the three main buckets I would, I would kind of classify or, or say really resonated the most with me are our race, class and immigration. But there's, there's so many that are really highlighted as I was putting in book darts and, and writing notes. I just had like, oh yeah, this and this and this and this, <laughs> like all these different things that she, she touches on. And I was like, I just want to deep dive on like all of these. Like <laughs> I want Kathy Park Hong to write like a 10 part series on like all of these things that she touches on in this book. Right. And, you know, I feel like this again is just such a, a huge book and that's like f- finally getting published that is diving in on these topics that I feel like very much get glossed over, um, a lot. And, um, the first essay like punches you in the gut, like is like, Hey, I am here. And this is what we're going to talk about. So like buckle in because, <laughs> um, this is, this is gonna Some of it is, is hard to read, um, but needs to be said. And I'm, I'm thankful that Kathy Park Hong was, you know, brave enough to, to say, you know, this is important. We're, you know, going to push, push this and get it, get it published because like we kind of mentioned in the previous episode, like once you see these things, it's very hard to unsee them. Um, and I'm really thankful that, um, this book is out there, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I agree. Like when, you know, just underlined half the first essay, basically. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know that first essay is so, so good. And just so like at the way I've seen it described is just like unapologetically Asian. And I'm like, heck yeah, that's like what, <laughs> that's like what we need. Like, uh, I feel like there's like always unapologetically, like all these different things, but I've never really heard like unapologetically Asian. And I'm like, I am here for this. <laughs> like, give me all the unapologetically Asian, please. <laughs> so... Um, one of the things that I, I really kind of resonated with him and we touched on it a little bit previously, but one of the things that I didn't even really know until recently is that Asians have the highest income disparity out of any race. And on top of that, there's not a lot of representation, whether it's politics um, or entertainment, media, all these different, different platforms and facets. And when you read some of the, like the stats and facts around this, you're just like, Oh my gosh, why aren't people talking about this? Like I never really realized this. And, and, and it, even to me, it was kind of a little bit shocking, but the reason why that these things aren't really highlighted is because, you know, once Asian Americans start voicing their complaints and opinions about things like the income gap or the lack of representation in all these different platforms, you know, people immediately whip out that, that fun model minority myth the thing that like I detest so much. I detest that as much as like Kendra detests hillbilly elegy. Like <laughs> that is that is a lot, I will say. Now we've contextualized it for everyone. <laughs> but I feel like that model minority myth, like people suddenly claim that, you know, the Asians are next in line to to be white. Like they have it so good. And like, look at all these amazing things that and opportunities you've had. Um, and they try to discount all of the issues that are being currently felt by those in the community. And 
that needs to stop. Like it, there's, there's, you can point to a lot of different experiences. Um, we, we caveat that a lot on this podcast to say like, you know, this book is in this author and their views aren't to, um, or even our thoughts and experiences aren't to paint this picture and represent entire community or, or, or population of people. Um, that's the same thing with this. Like the model minority myth isn't, applicable to every single Asian American person in the country. And it's still a huge roadblock. And I feel like a lot of books that I've read fiction and nonfiction do talk about the model minority myth, uh, especially in the Asian um, and Asian American community. But the way that Kathy Park Hong, you know, illustrates it and explains it and talks about how detrimental it can be to a body of people, um, the way that she does in this book is, hopefully, you know, even, even a little bit of light switch turned on for me. And I learned a lot, even as an Asian American reader, hopefully turns on the light bulb for a lot of people. I I would, I would hope. And, and talking about some of these issues, you know, experienced by our community, it's not talked about a lot, I feel. And I I think it's really great that this is a platform and, and, and a book that's dedicating itself to highlighting those issues. Yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking when I was reading this book, if I'd ever read a book that looked at being Asian American in this specific way. And I don't, I don't think I have. And I know mm. that there's been written, some written by Asian American men, but I, have, I haven't read any uh, by Asian American women, really. And I think her perspective is so unique. And she raises some issues that I remember coming out when there was an award show and a host who was African American brought on Mm -hmm. small Asian children as part of his bit. Oh. And it was not it was not it was not a good situation, obviously. No, it doesn't sound like it. And so like the internet (laughs) blew up and are like how are you not aware that this is racist towards Asian Americans? And they were like, well, mm-hmm. you, can you be racist towards Asian Americans? And like this whole like essay storm. Oh my God. Well, there's, there's even been instances I've read on, online. I, I can't point to it, the specific person or instance that this happened, but there has been comments too about whether or not Asian people or people in the Asian American community can call themselves people of color. Oh yeah. And I'm just like, huh? Like <laughs> seriously? Like I I don't I don't get it. Like, you know, make the equivalent that white people and Asian people, you know, are the same and that Asian people don't experience racism and, and, and shouldn't be considered people of color is just mind boggling to me. Like I I'm biracial and I feel like fairly white passing and I experienced a lot of racism in in my life, especially in childhood. Like I don't, I don't, I don't get it. Like, and again, again, it's because of things like the model minority myth and the erasure of, you know, Asian American issues and, um, discrimination it, that lends itself to how, like, how are we still having these discussions to this day? (laughs) Like it, it's because of that. Yeah. Yeah, so I really appreciate what Kathy Park Hong is doing, and and I feel like this is going to be a book that people return to as mm-hmm. I'm I'm hoping in my positive <laughs> outlook kind of self that this yes. is just the beginning of so many mm-hmm. more books like this because I think people have realized that this is kind of shine a light 
on the gap in the conversation, not just that she's filling the gap, but that there's so much more she could say. I mean, my primary thing when I finished the book was I want like 200 more pages of this. Yes. <laughs> right. 10, 10 book series. We need to tell, <laughs> we need to tell Kelly back. Hey, guess what? You're signing yourself up for a bunch more books similar to this. Cause that's like, give the people what they want. Poetry. Right? Wait, you're like, a poet. No, forget that. Forget <laughs> yeah. that. You're an, your research you're an for now. <laughs> this is your new life. Welcome. Yeah. Yes. Like I feel hopefully to your point, like we look back on this, the way that we were just kind of looking back at woman warrior and Maxine Hunkingston and how she was revolutionary for her time. Like hopefully we, you know, years and potentially decades from now, we look back at Kathy Park Hong in the same way to say that she was revolutionary in her time and started the conversation and the movement towards talking about these issues in, about Asian Americans and, and the community. So we'll, uh, we'll check out, we'll check back <laughs> <laughs> decades in the future and see what happens, I guess. So, yeah. And one of the things I, I really liked what she does is this is a written in a series of, of like personal essays. So she takes mm-hmm. her personal experience and her identity in that way and then expands and use that as like a, a springboard into this larger mm-hmm. conversation. And so for me, I didn't realize that it was personal essays going into it. So at first I was mm-hmm. very confused. I was like, this seems very personal. <laughs> and I had almost finished the book when I realized that it was personal essays. And I'm like, oh, Really, Kendra? <laughs> You've underlined like half the book already. You didn't notice. Um, but I appreciate that. I think, especially, I guess this is one of her first books on this is, you know, she is staying within the range that she is familiar with. But that's still very broad mm-hmm. because she goes from, you know, Asian women friendships to uh, the Asian woman artist. Um, mm-hmm. Her experience um, with English as a second language and being a poet in English and just so many different topics that you're like, oh, this is like she's just getting started. And so, like, there mm-hmm. were more questions that I had that I wanted to hear her write about. But I but I realized, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, you know, the other intersectional identities I wanted to hear more about, like, that was beyond the scope I think she was trying to do with this book and staying within mm-hmm. her own personal experience and using that as her springboard, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah no, totally. Definitely. Like, that was kind of one of my, like, mini, like, <laughs> tiny, tiny, tiny complaints with the book was that I did want more and wide breath. Like we talked, she talks about kind of in the beginning of the book that the community is so wide and there's all these, all these different facets of the Asian American, um, kind of community out there that I was like, okay, like I wish there was some comments on being like a biracial or like, you know, mixed race Asian American. Cause that's my experience, but it's like, that's not Kathy Park Hahn's experience. And she was mainly kind of, again, like you said, like weaving her own personal experiences into this overall wider narrative, um, about, you know, this Asian American kind of reckoning, uh, from her point of view specifically. Um, and you know, there's still so many things that she hits on, um, that I was still able to identify with. Um, you know, one of the examples is that she talks about how Asians are often caught in like this racial purgatory because they're not, either black or white. And, um, sometimes that is the kind of dichotomy that you have to face of, you know, being, being either, you know, white, um, or 
in the African-American community, especially I think in, in previous decades now, there's more focus on intersectionality and, and that wider spectrum. But I feel like that wasn't necessarily the case years ago. And many Asians through the decades, you know, if they say, okay, well, there's white and black, but like, where does Asian fall? Like how, where does that, and they're, they're caught in this racial purgatory. And I feel like that sometimes, and I've, I've talked about this before on the podcast, like being a biracial individual, I feel like that sometimes too. I'm like, you know, I am white and I'm Asian, but like, I'm not all the way white and I'm all the way Asian. So like when I with white people, I sometimes not, I don't feel like I'm not white enough. And then sometimes when I'm with the Asian people, especially like my Japanese side of family in Japan, I'm like, definitely don't feel Japanese enough because I don't speak the language. I, you know, not, I haven't lived in Japan or anything. I've only visited a handful of times. And so I feel like when I'm in either community, I don't feel like I a hundred percent belong anywhere. I feel a hundred percent biracial and that is really hard to <laughs> explain to, to people. And, and it's a very complex experience that I live every, every day. And so while that's not explicitly talked about, you know, the biracial experience in her book, some of those themes like racial purgatory are something that I, you know, deeply resonated with me. And so even though she's not covering, you know, every single facet of the white spirits because it is from her specific lens and these are personal essays, it doesn't mean that readers can't learn from them, you know, and still extrapolate um, things that they can easily relate to and learn from. Another part that she talks about is as a poet, feeling that it was like a faux pas to, for her poetry, for her art to interact with her Korean American identity. And that was such an important essay, I think, because especially I imagine a lot of other, especially young, you know, Asian American artists push back sometimes if if they want to interact with their identity, like it's too easy or it's not like the content that you should be writing in your art or, or whatever. And there's a lot of pressure to write a certain way, especially I think in formal like MFA communities and stuff like that. So I really appreciate the way that she spoke out about that because that's not something that a lot of people are talking about um, outside of that community. I'm sure it's a big conversation there, but I've never been in an MFA, Mm -hmm. so I, you know, I would not be part of that. Yeah. Well, I think, I think she even references in the book that she received, she, she, and I think some of her peers maybe received some criticism for her poetry being too focused on her ethnicity and race and identity. And, you know, from that feedback and, and such, she started stripping, I think some of her works of some of those things like language alluding to her identity or, or like ethnic markers in the, in the language. And I, I feel like it, 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 the way that it was framed is like, we need to focus on the poetry and the art and not about who you are and your identity and using that as like a sign of weakness or whatever. And that inherently through that, you know, feedback and that, that viewpoint kind of, uh, almost self-censors yourself. Yeah. It erases that part of your identity that you're open to sharing. And that's why things don't, don't get out into things like the, the publishing world, the literary world, the media platforms, things like that. If 
you're criticizing for sharing your experience, how are you going to get people to empathize and understand some of the things like racial discrimination and and issues that you experience uh, as a person? And that that I feel like it, it surfaces itself again when we talk about representation and how most of publishing is is mainly uh, employed and focused uh, by by white people um, and how like we said with uh, Woman Warrior and, and Maxine Hong Kingston's st- experience and story is that there's the idea of you you know we're going to pick you you and you to to represent this community and you have to have this wide voice that is going to represent everyone regardless of whether or not you've actually experienced all these different things, which you can't because you're one person, right? That a lot of things get filtered out because of the way that structurally we are are set up to to be and and the the structural society of how things are are built informs a lot of things whether we like it or not. And I think she really illustrates that very well in that discussion of her poetry and art and wrestling with trying to outline her identity and getting kind of shot down for that. And the way that she talks about, you know, people telling her that her work was too Asian or too Korean, you know, that mm-hmm. just, again, centers whiteness. Like whiteness, mm-hmm. they, people say like white culture doesn't exist because they view it as the default, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. obviously is just just so problematic and awful and racist in so many ways, mm-hmm. <laughs> like all the things. Yes. <laughs> but one of the things she also mentioned was that if she was writing about her identity and it was accepted, air quotes, uh, mm-hmm. by other people, it had to be centering her identity in relation to whiteness. So mm-hmm. essentially she's still writing in some way about the white experience mm-hmm. and, uh, how that was so obviously frustrating for her and how, uh, you know, having professors who just didn't get that. And Mm -hmm. that was just something that made me think a lot about, you know, Maxine Hong Kingston again, and and just the journey of all of that and the papers that I had read and a lot Mm -hmm. of the great voices that are speaking out about that. And I think with this book, there has been so many voices about these issues that she's talking about, but this is the first one that I've seen non-academics pick up like Mm, mm -hmm. the average reader is picking up this book about it and i know uh alexander chi has written a lot about this from his perspective as a biracial a queer asian man and different Mm -hmm. things but from a woman i should say um this is one of the first ones i've seen about that and yeah i feel like we could talk about this book for like (laughs) another like two hours because, yes <laughs> and I haven't even whipped out all of the amazing quotes that I underlined but <laughs> spare everyone <laughs> absolutely um well yes yeah, so we could gush about this one um for hours but um readers will or listeners will have to pick this one up themselves and and see what we are also just about so that is minor feelings by Kathy Park Hong and that is out from one world So those are two discussion picks, and a lot of you have mentioned that you want more reading selections if you want to continue down this journey of studying authors from this type of background. Um, So we have some further reading recs for you. Uh, So Sachi, what is one of yours? Yes. You know I'm all about the further reading recs, so... (laughs) 
any opportunity to plug more books, I will take it. So, um, as you probably can tell from our previous episode and this episode, some of the books that we recommended are pretty heavy. So like the last episode, we gave the caveat that, um, if you are self quarantining and, um, trying to live through, obviously, as we all are, this global pandemic and picking up a heavier title might not be, um, what you're looking for currently, um, to celebrate, Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, especially, um, I would recommend something funny and potentially, you know, more quick witted and humorous, um, for your reading experience. So I would recommend Dear Girls. Um, this is by Ali Wong. If you love her stand up, which um, is on Netflix, there's Baby Cobra and Hard Knock Wife. Um, she did both of her stand up tours while she was pregnant with her first and her second child. So if you love those, you'll love this book. <laughs> so I would definitely recommend picking, picking that up. Um, there's a lot of comedy memoirs out there and I've seen a couple from Asian men, but this is uh, a really great comedy memoir from an Asian American woman. So one of the things that I looked for was actually more Pacific Islander authors because that is something that's often left out. And I'm very aware that the list that we have recommended um, is very more Asian American as opposed to Pacific Islander. So what Jacqueline has done is put together a list of Pacific Islander writers and has done a lot of social media coverage for this as well over the course of the month. So uh, whether they are fiction or nonfiction, we're just going to include all of the things. Yeah. <laughs> because T. Kira Madden, who is Native Hawaiian and Chinese, is mm-hmm. been talking, is, talks about this, I think, every year about how, like, She's the only Pacific Islander she sees on a lot of big lists and different things. And so mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. have seen um, men, some more men who are Pacific Islander come out this year who did have audiobooks, but I haven't seen that many women mm-hmm. in my research. So we're going to include this list at the end of this episode and just encourage you, if you can read print, to go out, support indie presses, support these authors. Um, I know they've been doing a lot of great work. Um, especially Australia has a lot of great mm. uh, Pacific Islander anthologies and all sorts of things. So I will include that link. And definitely check out T. Kier Madden's memoir, uh, Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls. Again, very heavy. So mm-hmm. maybe not right now, but she reads the audiobook. But it's amazing. Uh, so what is your second pick? Yeah, so my second pick is Not My White Savior by Julaine Lee. And kind of going off um, on the poetry um, train still, it is a memoir in poetry, which I... um, I feel like is not as popular as, you know, a a normal memoir, I guess. Um, But I feel like sometimes it's harder for people to latch on to poetry because they're... Um, sometimes it's like context that people are like, well, what, like, what does this mean? And what does this mean? What does this mean? Like, you know, you get that detail when you read uh, a normal print book. Um, but I feel like for this memoir in poetry form kind of specifically, I, I feel like it was still very easy to follow. And I still got a lot of really, um, great context and, and insight to, um, Lee's experience. And it's, it's specifically about interracial adoption and talking about how, you know, sometimes when white American couples, um, adopt, uh, or have, you know, trans international adoption, um, and they adopt 
children from different countries, they sometimes do it out of a kind of white saviorism reason or motive. And it it can be potentially harmful for that that child as they grow up. And so she talks about her experiences with that specifically and living in a kind of predominantly white um, rural area as well. And uh, if you loved our... Uh, 2018 Reading Women Shortlist pick All You Can Ever Know um, by Nicole Chung. We love Nicole Chung on this podcast. (laughs) This is a really great companion to that book. A lot of the same type of themes, very powerful and really enjoyed that one. And I'm going to squeeze in tiny one tiny other one. Another (laughs) shortlist winner from that year was Monsoon Mansion by Sonelle Barnes. And her second book that recently came out is a collection of um, essays called Malaya. And that would also be really, really perfect for the theme. If you read Monsoon Mansion, you wanted to see what happened to Sonelle after she moved from the Philippines to America. That is what Malaya is focused on and is a wonderful collection of, I feel like I like know her now. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, so no, like, and I follow her now. Uh, like I follow her on all like platforms and, and such. And I just love seeing her updates because I feel like I'm like, I, you're like one of my friends. I like know who you are. Um, <laughs> that is also a really great, great pick. So I, I'm going to sneak that in as another uh, nonfiction pick for, for this theme. Um, so yeah, that's it after, uh, definitely go check out these books. We obviously love them. Um, and so where can listeners find you about the internet, Sachi? Um, you can mainly find me on Instagram at Sachi Reads. And you all can find me at KD Winchester. Uh, that's K as in Kite, D as in Dylan, Winchester on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, mostly Instagram because I want to post photos of my corgi. And heck yeah, join the club. <laughs> <laughs> we are founding members, apparently, of the Bookish oh, yeah. Corgi Club. Um, <laughs> all right. So everyone, that's our show. If you haven't yet, please leave us a review in your podcast app of choice. And thanks to all of you who have already done that. And many thanks to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. To subscribe to our newsletter or to learn more about becoming one of our patrons, visit us at readingwomenpodcast.com. Join us next time where Kendra and Jacqueline will be talking about books by Caribbean women authors for Caribbean Heritage Month. In the meantime, you can find Reading Women on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. Thanks for listening. Storybound is a podcast where acclaimed writers read their essays and stories, which are then scored by unique and award-winning composers with each episode hosted by myself, Jude Brewer. With Storybound, you'll find a whole array of genres and musical styles, some painful yet sweet, or hilarious yet tragic, all brought to you by the Podglomerate and Lit Hub Radio. Hi, I'm So Pandep. Hi, I'm Megan Angelo. This is Tommy Orange. This is Amanda Stern. This is Phil Cly. Hello, this is Stephanie Dandler. My name is Chloe Caldwell, and you're listening to Storybound. Storybound. This is Storybound. 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 This is the Storybound podcast. Season two will be arriving on July 14th with new episodes every Tuesday, featuring writers like Stephanie Dandler, Garth Greenwell, Tommy Orange, Chloe Caldwell, and more. Make sure to subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And tell a friend, because the next best thing to hearing a great story is having someone to share it with.